what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. What makes a work environment toxic? In short, it's relationships. We can define a toxic work environment in all sorts of specific ways, and we must. But at the end of the day, a toxic work environment is the product of relationships between people. We commonly look at those relationships through the lens of culture, oppression, psychology, and sociology. And those are all important ways to approach understanding how we work or don't work together. But economics has a little something to teach us about work relationships, too. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This week, we're continuing our series, The Economics Of, with a look at the economics of hiring help. Among small business owners and independent workers, there are wide concerns about hiring others. Some are worried about the money, what's fair and what's not, what's affordable and what's not. Others are concerned about becoming a manager, either because they've had a less than positive experience as someone's supervisor or because they've been poorly managed themselves in the past. And still others can't imagine that anyone would want to work for them, not when that person could go out and pursue their own gigs. Of course, there are plenty of other reasons people get nervous about hiring too, but they all boil down to, you guessed it, relationships. Now, toward the end of 2022, I got a text message from friend of the pod, Kate Strathman. Do you want to have a conversation with no answers? Do I want to have a conversation with no answers? Yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. <laughs> Kate told me what prompted her text. I got an email query from somebody in Wanderwell's community. And this is somebody who, as I understand it, is a solo kind of service-based business, probably online or something like that. And trying to figure out, like, how do I go back to getting having help in my business? Like, I've had employees before, I've had help, but I don't want to give up control. And I don't want to have to... Really, I think collaborate on the vision is what this question was about. So there may be kind of lower levels of collaboration, but in terms of like direction and vision of business, um, is there a way to bring someone into the business in a support role? And the question that I asked specifically I thought was interesting, which is that they didn't want to do that in a way in which they are profiting from the employee's labor more than they are. Like, what are the possibilities and what does that look like? Well, it's entirely possible to have a nice business that generously supports one person and fulfills a genuine need for its customers. Once you start thinking about making a bigger impact, freeing up your own time and attention, and yes, making more money, you start thinking about hiring some help. 
once you start thinking about hiring help, you're probably gonna start considering all sorts of relationship quandaries. How much does someone deserve to get paid? How much of a say should they have in the work they do or the direction of the business? How much time will need to be spent on management and meetings? Is it possible to create a fulfilling and rewarding experience for an employee, even if resources are a bit tight? And for many equity and justice-minded people, the number one question is, can I hire someone without exploiting them? We know there's like a ceiling that one person can do all by themselves. So like getting support, paying for support, but not in a way that is in the typical kind of exploitative labor relation that we talk about a lot now. How do we understand the labor relations we're creating and that also we're a part of as working owners? Let's take a few steps back here. First, we should review what economics is in the first place. Economics is the study of how limited resources with many possible uses are distributed to meet needs and wants. When we're looking at a business, whether a multinational corporation or a tiny one-person shop, economics helps us understand how resources flow in different relationships between people. It also helps us understand how different resources are valued, extracted, or exploited by different stakeholders. And it also helps us understand how various stakeholders contribute resources to the organization. Take labor power. Labor power is someone's ability to work sold to a capitalist for an agreed upon amount of time, I think is a good way to think about it. So like Mm -hmm. I, a worker, might be contracted with you, my boss, to show up from nine to five. So that's like the time that I'm selling to you. But the key is the, like me as the worker, I'm not paid for the quote unquote fruits of my labor. I'm paid for the time that I'm showing up. So like once I step into your workplace, you, the capitalist, get to direct how I spend my time and how work happens. So that's where we got the surplus value that I'm describing, where there's a difference between the exchange value of my labor, which is like what you pay me for the amount of time I'm showing up there, and then the value that my labor produces for you. So in other words, like what you can sell on the other end based on my, my labor. The difference is where we find surplus value. Here's how the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy puts it. Quote, By far, the most influential theory of exploitation ever set forth is that of Karl Marx, who held that workers in a capitalist society are exploited insofar as they are forced to sell their labor power to capitalists for less than the full value of the commodities they produce with their labor. Here's an example. Let's say a capitalist hires me to write an article for $500. Then they take the space around the article and sell it to advertisers for $1,000. I don't receive the full market value for what I produced, and then the capitalist pockets the difference. And look, that's fine. In fact, by building on labor from different parties, we create systems that do what individuals all working on their own could not. 
While I might be able to sell $1,000 worth of ads to a single article on my own website and newsletter, I generally don't want to manage that type of transaction. I'd rather spend my time writing. So accepting a rate that's lower than market value for the space my article creates is perfectly reasonable to me. Like the solution to, I don't want to hire people and exploit them for surplus value isn't to create a subsistence level business, which is what I see a lot of happening in the like kind of capitalist critical values space or in more equitable value space because we need surplus as buffer. We need surplus to care for our businesses and our people. If our expenses are always equaling our revenue, we're gonna run the business into the ground pretty quickly because we need like rainy day funds. We need buffer because your revenue goes up and down month to month. We need money to like reinvest into the business to like, to take on higher levels of care. So it's not that like profit or to just keep calling it literally what it is, surplus value is evil or bad. It's like we do in a sort of, in a very concrete way in a given month, need to have a certain amount of surplus value occur in the business regularly. Surplus value isn't evil or bad. However, it does create an important power dynamic in the relationship between employer and employee. And it's important to understand this power dynamic. In a market economy where the value of my labor is mediated through an employer, my work and what I'm paid for it is dependent on that employer rather than the value I can produce. You know, Marx names this too of when in the transition to capitalism, creating workers that were dependent on wages to meet their needs. It's not like capitalist owners of the business took over and were like, okay, well, we're going to set a certain, you know, percentage of my you know, what I'm ultimately making off of all this widget making, and then you get a percentage of that. It's more like, you know, Marx noted that uh, wages are set based on, as he would have called it, the means of subsistence, meaning like, what do workers actually just need to buy commodities and survive? So we're setting wages more often in this system based on, you know, what do I have to pay to keep someone fed, housed, clothed, whatever. And so not really connected at all to then what I can turn around and sell that labor to create excess value around. So there's like a disconnect between the value being produced and how you're compensating for that value production. And that's intentional. That's how an employer gains their power over the worker by providing the means of subsistence rather than compensating for the value being produced, the worker is always in need of an employer, while the employer generally has a ready supply of available labor such that the employer doesn't need any individual worker. When a worker sells their time to something or someone else, the buyer gains power over them for at least that amount of time. But in reality, the employer exercises power over much more than the time the worker is, quote, on the clock. 
A union reminds the employer that workers aren't only selling their time. They're a critical part of how value is produced. And that value is the only way the employer can profit. Now, in the case of much smaller businesses and independent workers, the contractor relationship should prevent this power over dynamic. A contractor, by definition, has the power to set their own rates, decide on when, how, and where they'll work, and exercise rights over what they create unless they willingly sign those rights over. However, the contractor relationship is often exploited. Businesses designate a worker as a contractor so that they don't have to pay payroll taxes or offer benefits. But the business still treats the contractor as an employee. And this is how gig economy companies tend to work, as well as the whole labor outsourcing ecosystem. But it's also how many small business owners deal with assistance and support workers of all stripes. To bring this back to how work relationships influence how resources flow, employers gain control over time, a resource, from employees who receive a wage, another resource, and hopefully benefits. A contractor, in theory, retains control of their time, a resource, by giving up predictable wage and benefits, another resource. Now, one way to get away from the power dynamic that comes with the employer-employee relationship or the potentially exploitative reliance on surplus value to create more capital is to form work relationships with shared ownership. That could be an equal partnership or it could be a worker cooperative. These relationships allow worker owners to accomplish more than they could on their own but they can also introduce some weirdness. For instance, it's one thing to say that equal partners split net profit right down the middle. It's another thing to say who owns what in terms of intellectual property. So while partnership and cooperative models are enticing, there are other considerations. I think there's kind of a like, bigger picture framing around like what are we creating together and so you know one of the things I think about it and particularly like connected to like a lot of the kinds of people I work with folks in your community that like business owners we know most often it's not like we're producing commodities in the sort of like physical sense a lot of the time it's not like a light bulb factory where maybe there was an inventor and like came up with a really cool new innovative light bulb and that's like a visionary thing. But at the end of the day, like we're talking about kind of mundane things. I think a lot of this question comes up for people because of this newer, more contemporary phenomenon where we're commodifying our passions, our individual geniuses, our creativity and kind of creating these new services and products that 
often we're creating, having to create markets for, and that can, I think, feel like a really hard thing to share. Like, am I going to give up my unique special snowflake view of the world and like intellectual property? And then I think the other piece of it, which we're seeing play out a lot, is how much do workers have control and autonomy over their time? And this is huge in the sort of like whole debate and turmoil over whether workers have to go back into the office or not. It turns out the thing that makes people happy is having a lot of control over their time and flexibility around that. There's a lot of ground between you have to show up at my office and I tell you what to do all day long and you just are running through this task list and you have a stake and a say in the vision of this business that I've created based on my passions and genius. And I think that's where like things get really sticky It's like, what kinds of collaboration are we talking about? What kinds of decision-making? What kinds of control? What kinds of flexibility and things like that? You know, I think there's like a lot of places to play in that ground. Like it's not so binary. And at the same time, you know, a lot of business owners we hear talking about wanting their employees to take more ownership, but then they don't actually want to give up ownership or control to employees. So it's like we're, we're all kind of suffering under the outside's burden of decision-making and leadership as like solo owners. The question of getting our team members to take more ownership, I think, is really interesting in light of the surplus value question as well. Because one way to think of asking the people that you pay to take more ownership over their work is that you are trying to increase the amount of surplus value that you are extracting from their labor. And that if you want people to take more ownership, then you need to make sure that you're compensating them for that level of value being created in your business. And I'm not suggesting that it necessarily has to be a one-to-one thing, but you know, if you're saying, well, my virtual assistant isn't taking ownership over X, Y, or Z task, it's like, well, why should they? Is that what you're paying them for? Is that what's in the contract? We can't expect to undercompensate people and then have them over deliver for us because that right there is like sort of the the nut of how exploitation happens in a business running in the system of capitalism, right? Benevolent dictatorships are super efficient. (laughs) So, you know, I think that concern is real. I also have some questions about it, though, which is that I sometimes wonder if we have these worries and sort of frames around collaboration taking up a lot of emotional labor bandwidth. Here's a better way to frame it. All that sort of like water cooler back office chatter around how your job sucks, how your manager sucks, how do you work around the sort of weird hierarchies and office politics that have come up. Like I see this with my partner all the time who works in a fairly large creative agency setting. There actually is a lot of labor happening. It's around collaboration and how work's done. It's just more hidden because people are having to do a lot of like back channeling and almost like scaffolding to take back some sense of autonomy and sort of moving work forward within a hierarchy. And I think the sort of work of collaboration, often all that's happening there is that the invisible work is being made visible and we're having to be, we're having to be more intentional about it so that 
gives the appearance of like a whole lot more work. And some of this might even just be like the kinds of labor that you have to do with yourself mm -hmm. of like going home and kvetching to your partner or like therapist or whatever to show up and be a worker in a kind of more hierarchical traditional workplace. So that work of how we work happens somewhere. I think it's that like we make it really overt in more like cooperative collaborative structures. Kate is exactly right. Working with people well requires ample emotional bandwidth, time, and attention. It requires care work. As she said, that care work often happens in the liminal spaces in traditional workplaces. As Sylvia Federici put it, is bringing coffee to your boss and chatting with him about his marital problems secretarial work? Or is it a personal favor? Care work is often unnamed and performed by people, i.e. women and people from historically marginalized communities, who are assumed to be responsible for that type of work. It's not recognized as a requirement of the job, but it absolutely counts against you if you don't do it the way you're expected to by virtue of your gender or race. Kate introduced me to an organization that does name care work and compensates people for it. There's a translation cooperative, I think they're out of the UK, somewhere in Europe, called Guerrilla Translation, they actually have a system for accounting for care work in their business, which I think is really cool. And care work can look like the sort of like taking out the garbage sort of work of administration in a business that has to happen, but it's also mediating, like doing that kind of like relational labor that helps people work together. Like they have a system for accounting and crediting and compensating for that work explicitly. So, of course, I spent an afternoon pouring through their incredible website and clicking all of the links. They've made all of their governance and compensation model documentation publicly available. And they've taken the care to explain why they do what they do and how it works in practice. Now, the system is too complex to communicate on a podcast. If you're super curious, I highly recommend checking out their website, which contains many wonderful and clarifying diagrams. But I do want to give you a taste of what this looks like. First, Guerrilla Translation recognizes two categories of value production within their collective, pro bono work and agency work. Pro bono work is work they choose to do because it contributes to the mission of the collective. For example, they might choose to translate an article on alternative monetary policy for publication on their blog. They don't get paid for it, but it does further their mission. Agency work is work they're commissioned to do. An organization might hire them to translate learning materials into other languages to increase the content's accessibility. So that's work they do get paid for. Then there's a third category of work, care work. Now that care work sees to the health of the collective. This includes business development, internal mentoring, communicating with clients, bookkeeping, etc. They put it this way, care work is, quote, everything that you'd consider as admin work in a traditional agency or co-op, and on top of that, 
everything else that's easily forgotten if you're not doing it yourself. It's literally invisible work to those who don't acknowledge it and work that may feel unjustifiably obligated to take on. Guerrilla Translation makes all care work visible by documenting what needs to be done to keep the collective healthy. Guerrilla Translators agree to share in the care work as part of their full membership in the collective. It's everyone's responsibility, which means that care work is unlikely to be seen as something low status or the work of certain members rather than others. Now, both pro bono and agency work are compensated. To do this, Guerrilla Translation uses a system called contributive accounting, which informs how all types of work are documented. In terms of financial compensation, pro bono work is documented in love credits, and agency work is documented in livelihood credits. At the end of the month, a portion of the revenue generated that month is divested to members. 75% goes to paying out livelihood credits, and 25% goes to paying out love credits. Both love credits and livelihood credits are also documented as historical credits, and those aren't financial. Instead, they represent a share of decision-making power. And that power is equal to the overall investment a member has made in the collective. Care work activities earn historical credits. So as members do more care work, they accrue a further investment in the collective and greater decision-making power. Now on the surface, this seems like a much more complicated system than the financial accounting we're used to. But that perception is more a function of its novelty than it is an objective difference. Bookkeeping and accounting in traditional businesses is also complicated. But if it's the only system you've ever known, it seems natural. It seems fairly straightforward when it's just as contrived as any other system. Now, the perception of traditional accounting systems as natural and straightforward allows us to ignore the way resources are actually distributed. We don't have to think beyond whether we're paying someone a fair rate to consider whether the basis for how we're paying them in the first place is aligned with our values. By taking the care to intentionally design a system of contribution and distribution, a collective like Guerrilla Translation can make the flow of resources demonstrable and transparent. My INTP world builder system creator brain absolutely loves this. My harried, capitalism-colonized entrepreneur brain can't imagine actually implementing it. But that's how the status quo remains status quo, right? It takes additional care and work to update the default settings on our businesses. Now, as Kate pointed out earlier, a contributive accounting system like this makes more sense for services like translation or even design or, say, podcast production than it does for a business that is based on intellectual property, which is the subject of an upcoming episode in this series. 
A group of translators can see how what they're building is the business and governance thereof, rather than a particular creative work that can be leveraged for profit. An individual artist, writer, creator, consultant, or educator is gonna have a harder time with that. So please know that I am not sharing this case study as a recommendation. Instead, it's an example of working with others and doing business outside the problematic systems we've inherited. And I don't know how you do that in like a very tiny like solo business, <laughs> but I think it's an interesting concept to think about is like, how do we ensure we're actually valuing and compensating that work? The folks that I work with, they're more often exploiting themselves than their employees. Mm -hmm. Like that's the part of the surplus value that they're like trading off of. It's not that they're like intentionally paying their employees less so that they can make more surplus value. It's that... They're actually paying themselves less, and that's where they're generating the profits from. You know, when I work with people around this, we take that whole pizza of net profits and real profits, and some of that pizza stays in the fridge of the business to eat later. Some of that goes out to owners because the mechanism is different, not because they deserve more necessarily. And some of that goes to employees. But it's not like we're giving the employees all of it back because some of it also needs to care for the business long term. But again, like if we're ending the year at net zero at break even, we're going to run into problems at some point. I was thinking about what is the actual financial need of the business, right? So mm. like, what does it actually cost in terms of your own labor and in terms of other people's labor yeah. to run this business in the way that you want it to be run. And I think that that is not a calculation that's happening near often enough, right? We think about how much money we want to make from the business. We think about what kind of help we need and how much that help is going to cost. But we don't often have this sort of like vision of a, of a budget, vision of a P&L that accounts for the operating expenses that are actually needed and that we're not aware of, right? So like all of that emotional labor that you might be doing as an owner worker. There is one final aspect of the economics of hiring help that I want to address before we wrap up. And that is, to put it dramatically, entrepreneurial martyrdom. When you care about treating others fairly, modeling new ways of working together, participating in alternative ways to distribute resources, it's entirely possible to overstep. Personally and politically, I believe that businesses have a real responsibility to the people that help them produce value. I believe that responsibility extends to dignity, agency, and compensation. But I also believe that too much in our economic system hinges on what businesses provide to workers. Should it really be a company's job to be the primary provider of social interaction, healthcare, wellness, and education to the people they hire? Should we be beholden to employers, macro or micro, for all of our most basic human needs? No, I don't think so. 
I believe there are far better ways to build care and needs meeting into our communities. While it's certainly true that unexamined economic relationships can create toxic work environments, it's also true that trying to be everything to everyone through the guise of business creates toxic work environments too. The threads I kind of want to pull on to close are, one, it's impossible, I feel, to care for people in the way I wish I could through my business. It's just not a realistic expectation of especially like small and micro businesses. And at the same time, I think there's a real responsibility and commitment that all business owners really need to make and step into to understand how their financial model works and like how the money flows through it all so that they can make better decisions about it. Like, I feel like a lot of the struggle I see is folks don't quite understand or don't have the like financial literacy yet to grasp Mm -hmm. what's happening and how to change it. You know, I think there's like a real commitment to make to understanding the tiny economy of your business and then like how you might be able to make better decisions or different decisions maybe is a better way to put it. Like, how are you trading wages for time or value? in your business because there are, you can actually experiment with these structures but I think the first step and the hardest thing is there's also just a lot of labor that you need to do as a business owner around like understanding how it works and literacy and that, that's also the like I guess in closing I'll say that's the really hard thing about wanting to be more ethical and be more of a change maker around the structure of your business is like there's also more work there. It's a tricky balance. Intentionally crafting ways of doing business that are fair and sustainable for all involved, while at the same time recognizing the limitations of the systems we live and work in. But we have an incredible power, as Kate put it, to understand the tiny economy of our businesses and explore what's possible. It can be really fun work. It is. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Huge thanks to Kate Strathman for texting me with her sticky question for a conversation with no answers. You can find her bookkeeping and consulting services, as well as her excellent newsletter at wanderwellconsulting.com. Plus, you can hear a few other conversations I've had with Kate on related topics in episodes 341, 298, and 153 of What Works. Next week, we're examining the economics of attention and how attention is bought and sold through the commodification of audiences. You can find previous episodes in this series, The Economics of Decisions and The Economics of Information, in the What Works feed. If you enjoy the unexpected ideas and rigorous research I share on this podcast, I'd love if you left a rating and review on your platform of choice. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Finally, I release written versions of each episode every Thursday in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Sign up free of charge at explorewhatworks.com weekly. 
That's explorewhatworks.com slash weekly. Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people, and the Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.